Welcome to this episode of Talking Constitutions, a series of podcasts in which we explore the constitutional arrangements that frame the day-to-day affairs of politics and that affect our lives in a myriad of ways. Our subject today is advisors and constitutions, considering why rulers wish to have special advisors and whether special advisors pose a threat to constitutional rule. My name is John Hudson, and discussing these questions with me from historical and from contemporary perspectives are Ali Ansari, Caroline Humphreys, and Jacqueline Rose. Ali Ansari is Professor of Modern History at the University of St Andrews and a specialist on modern Iran. He's also a Senior Associate Fellow at the Royal United Services Institute and is currently on a fellowship at the Foreign Office, providing, amongst other things, advice. Obviously, he is speaking today in a personal capacity. Caroline Humphreys is Director of the Institute of Legal and Constitutional Research at the University of St Andrews. And Jacqueline Rose is Senior Lecturer in History at St Andrews. And she's recently been editing with Colin Kidd a volume entitled Political Advice, Past, Present and Future. And the volume will be published in February 2021. So throughout history, one of the major conflicts that have happened within constitutions is the question of who controls, who provides advice for rulers. So starting with you, Jacqueline, what would you say is the particular appeal to rulers of having special advisers chosen by themselves? I think there's perhaps three areas into which this appeal might be uh, categorised. Firstly, we might think of a very practical appeal, one in which special advisers offer a particular expertise that a ruler or leader feels they don't have. Nowadays, we might think of that as falling into the areas of policy content or delivery or media advice. But there's also a much longer recognition throughout history that rulers even when they're held to govern by hereditary right or divine right, can't know everything and might need some extra knowledge from their advisors. Second, I think there's a cluster of perhaps psychological reasons for the appeal of special advisors. These would fall into the areas of trust, of support, of having someone you can rely on to conceal the weaknesses that a ruler might appear, uh, might reveal to their advisors, and also really having someone you feel is on your side. I think that last point comes out very clearly in discussions of the rise of special advisors in the UK in the 1960s and 70s, when they were felt to help particularly Labour ministers against small or large C conservatism in the civil service. Again, there's a longer background of wanting advice from friends behind that. And then thirdly, perhaps a more cynical set of reasons for appeal, having someone who's dependent on you to blame if things go wrong, or also the ways in which referring something to an advisor can help delay a decision or delegate a decision someone doesn't want to make. So as we might see as this discussion goes on, lots of the rationale behind special advisors can be really positive or really negative. Caroline? Yeah, I would just add that I think even the most powerful ruler has to persuade 
So another kind of attraction for having special advisors is this role of how to translate the particular sort of ruling qualities that a ruler wants to have into action. So it's also about controlling access to the ruler himself or herself. So if you look at the fifth century CE, you see Attila the Hun surrounded by advisors. If you look at the late 12th, early 13th century, Genghis Khan surrounded by advisors. And part of that is about controlling access to the ruler, as well as trying to get that kind of persuasive message um, out to those who are being ruled. I think that, that, as Jacqueline's already mentioned, the question of special advisors is quite specific in relation to modern liberal democracies and maybe even modern neoliberal democracies. So if you think the essential work of politics is trying to decide how to provide, distribute, regulate resources, then we see a shift from around the 1980s in terms of reinventing government so that it steers rather than rows. This leads to a shift in the policy, public policy universe from faith in technocratic expertise. So I'm thinking here IMF missions, USA Pentagon officials, UK civil servants into policymaking. Politics is mostly a matter of persuasion. So I think the growth of special advisors in the sort of UK USA context is also linked to this rise in governments, governance in and by networks. So it's this network governance um, shift that we've had since the 1980s, which has really put this idea of special advisors on the map. Ali, would you agree with these views linking the sort of periodization of change and linking to particular types of government, be it in Western Europe or be it elsewhere? I mean, I think I think that's right. I mean, I I, I agree, actually, unsurprisingly, you know, uh, broadly with 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 uh, both my colleagues here. I I think I would add a you know an extra dimension to it. I suppose when you're looking particularly at the Iranian case that I obviously know quite well, and that's the use of foreign special advisors. And the reason they do that, of course, is because they stand outside, you know, even that not only the bureaucratic sort of uh, organization that that uh, governments tend to or rulers tend to rely on. But um, also just outside that political culture. And it's quite striking how throughout, I'd say, uh, modern Iranian history, if not even earlier, going back to, you know, I wouldn't want to include Genghis Khan as an Iranian ruler. But, uh, you know, that sort of sentiment that you have even with the Ilkhanids and others that you sometimes find in their entourage, you know, uh, Christian missionaries and others who would have nothing to do, obviously, with the uh, with the political setup. But they're seen as what we'd call impartial or objective advisors as to what is going on. And there are a number of cases you know, throughout the 19th and 20th century of Iranian kings basically actively seeking the advice of foreign diplomatic missions to give them what they consider to be much more objective advice as to what is going on within their own countries. Because they always say, well, the people I normally consult are very sycophantic. You know, they're always telling me what I want to hear. I want you to tell me what really is the truth about it. But of course, that reflects something that is a deeper malaise in some of these political structures. And that is that, A, they're highly personal. And they're highly unstable. And because they're highly personal and highly unstable in political sense, few of the sort of the bureaucrats that you have uh, existing then, you know, the various viziers have really the courage to speak truth to power. I mean, they don't want to do it because it might get them into trouble. 
Uh, so they'll tend to sort of mollify everything. And instead, you know, you bring in your British ambassador or your Russian ambassador or whatever, and they come in and they give uh, the advice without fear or favour. And of course, that becomes highly valued. It's a bit of a vicious circle, really, because then it obviously makes them dependent in a way on foreign advisors. But they haven't created that sort of political environment domestically to allow for very clear advice. There was a quite a, a famous anecdote, I think, I'd like to think it's true, actually, that the last Shah said, what's the difference between me and my father? And the people said to him, they said, uh, the difference between you and your father, sire, is that everyone was terrified to lie to your father, but everyone's terrified to tell you the truth. And of course, that was the, <laughs> one of the reasons they said for his uh, for his ultimate demise. That's very interesting. Let, let's go on. Uh, I see a link with fathers and sons because the English constitutional tradition is often said to start with Magna Carta and the reaction against King John. But in many ways, the plannings of constitutional devices, constitutional restraints, happens much more in the reign of his son, Henry III. And one of the stories told of Henry III, again, possibly true, is that his half-brothers, who were from France and were seen as alien by the uh, English nobility, whispered to him that he was above the law, which is interesting in many ways, obviously for the idea that the king was above the law, but also that they whispered to him and that therefore they were the people who monopolized the ruler's ear. So that suggests in this period, in the Middle Ages and before and later, the question of advice has been a contentious one. So I'm wondering, Caroline, why it is a repeatedly contentious one? And is the contentiousness necessarily constitutional? So I think if we take the example of the United Kingdom, so since 1964, Harold Wilson's Labour government, a special advisor has been part of the civil service but is not a permanent civil servant. And the whole reason for the existence of special advisors from 1964 onwards is that they are political appointees. So they are political appointees appointed to advise on party politics. They form a kind of linchpin between the particular party and a minister. And yet they're not permanently part of the civil servant or governed by those kind of constitutional sort of values and rules that the civil service is seen to be governed by. So I think this makes them incredibly contentious alongside that kind of intuitive idea that whispering in people's ears is how things really work. <laughs> so I think those two issues, I mean, it's, it's, as we presumably will talk about a bit later, it's not at all I think that special advisors don't have powers and regulations and ideas of conduct to govern them. They do, but they just tap into this kind of intuitive idea that people have that whispering in people's ears is how politics works. So I think they will necessarily always be contentious, regardless of their actual constitutional positioning or function. Ali, would you like to take that, take that forward? I mean, I think that's, you know, it's this idea that an advisor sits outside the sort of formal bureaucratic structure and therefore is not subject to all the various constraints that that may, uh, that that may impose on them. I suppose arguably the idea is, is that they're not subject to the sort of group think that people, you know, suspect that a bureaucratic structure might be subjected to. On the other hand, they're not then, you know, they seem to be getting a certain amount of preferential access, which is, of course, something that, you know, the bureaucracy and other things would probably find, you know, quite irritating. And when you, you know, look at it on, as I said, further afield in the, you know, uh, the non-European world, this idea of having foreign advisors just adds to that 
uh, that frustration, I think, with which people have. I think ultimately also there's, and you know, going back to what Caroline was saying about Harold Wilson, it's also this sort of political tension that exists. So, you know, an advisor is there to give, in a sense, impartial advice, but actually, in many cases, they're brought in because they're politically of the same, you know. So, so there is this sort of innate tension about how impartial can they possibly be, you know, in that sense. But they're there because they share the same political outlook in some ways as the as as, as the individuals uh, who, who've who've called them in. I mean, not in every case by any stretch of the imagination. Certainly not in the case of Iran that I would look at. But but I I, I could see that as a as 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 an obvious tension. This is also part of this idea of the rise of network governance. That you know, if you're in a sort of neoliberal system where you've got you know regulatory capitalism, you've got privatization, you've got growth of both state and non-state regulation, then there's always this kind of danger, and I think it is a danger, that your special advisor is at the same time going to have some kind of lobbying role <laughs> for some sort of non-state yet government network linked organization. So I think in the present day, that kind of you know constant tension between lobbying roles and special advisor roles can produce you know a, a really quite volatile situation, as we've seen in the current politics in the UK in the last couple of months. Jacqueline. Yeah, I mean, I think just picking up on Caroline's point there and also the point she made uh, in answer to your previous question, it's quite easy to think that there are problems around special advisors that are particularly intense at the moment or have been particularly intense in the last 20 years or so. Well, that's partly true. I think a lot of the arguments involved there actually reflect some of the inherent problems of advice that Ali was also mentioning, that different participants or witnesses of a political process want advisors to do contradictory things. So they want honest advice, but they also want advice that's going to be acceptable in at least a minimal sense. So someone does actually listen to it and doesn't reject it. People want advisors to be a way of reaching out across these political networks, but also want them to be discreet, confidential, trusted. And perhaps overall, they want advisors to restrain dangerous tendencies in rulers, but they also want them to support rulers. I think the particular issue perhaps with special advisors is that they are still in something of a constitutional grey area and therefore they're particularly vulnerable to a charge of unbalancing the equilibrium between these tensions one way or another. Other types of advisors perhaps have a more clearly defined role where if there's a conflict it's a lot easier to tell which way they should jump or focus. And I think also as Caroline and Ali have mentioned there's a whole cluster of worries that commonly come up. They're about access, special access, about some sort of secret or mysterious process where there's no real accountability and therefore is there something dodgy going on? That's what all those references to whispers tend to refer to and you get those in the past um, as well. Uh, I think there may be a particularly modern question about the cost of special advisors. So those are there, but I think they're not unique to 21st century 
democracies because in other societies where the political nation or groups involved in politics are a lot smaller, you still get the same worries about particularly favoured individuals or groups and whether they should, according to some constitutional norm or perceived constitutional norm, have that sort of favour. Yeah, so I think that there is a particular context in the United Kingdom, though, about a sort of parliamentary constitutional system. So special advisors in the UK system, at least since Harold Wilson, are responsible to the minister that they advise, and the minister is responsible to parliament. So in terms of the kind of constitutional framework, there is a sort of gap there in terms of the accountability, as Jacqueline was saying, of the special advisers themselves. And I think also with the UK, as we've seen again, you know, fairly recently, there is this kind of question of cabinet and prime minister dynamics in terms of special advisers. So, you know, the attempts that we've seen with recent governments to try and centralise a special advisor network and the sort of tensions that have been produced there. So I'm thinking of um, Sajid Javid and, you know, the fact that he was he would he resigned from the position of Chancellor of Exchequer rather than allow this kind of centralisation from number 10 to happen in terms of the special advisor's role. So I think it's a pretty unenviable position to be in, to be a special advisor. Um, and it might be well to kind of remind ourselves of that fact when we're thinking about, you know, the, the ear whispering and the kind of power that obviously goes along with with this role, too. I think there's presumably a sort of inherent instability within such a system or something that's very hard to balance because to be a special advisor by definition involves excluding other people and therefore there's a limited number of people who can be consulted in any consultative system because part of the purpose of consultation isn't actually to get advice, it is a form of patronage, it's a way of making people feel special. And therefore, one of the ways in which this has been dealt with in the past is to have people other than the ruler appointing the advisers. And again, with the reign of Henry III that I was talking about, uh, having baronially appointed councillors or specially appointed councils of fixed numbers of people who had to be consulted by the king was the way forward. And one of the odd elements we have within the British constitution, the UK constitution, is the institution known as the Privy Council, much mentioned and probably little understood. I was wondering, Jacqueline, whether you could explain to us something about the history and function of the Privy Council. What is often told is a, a sort of historical narrative of the gradual institutionalisation of advice, and the Privy Council gets a lot of attention in that sort of narrative. So this sense of the emergence of, first of all, a small group of King's Council, that then becoming larger, shrinking again to a Privy Council that's usually dated to some time in the middle of the reign of Henry VIII, so the 1530s, around 1540, and then later on a cabinet emerging from that. And I think the Privy Council is a good example of the way in which thinking about the institutionalisation of advice can be difficult. So the Privy Council gets identified or dated by uh, markers such as having a name or label, having a set time when it meets, having its own system of records, 
having its own clerk or secretary. But I think it's also a good example of how, if we're not careful, this sort of institutionalization starts looking like some sort of inevitable process. So it's not necessarily that there's been an effort to institutionalize advice or when there are efforts like under Henry III, they often go wrong. For the period I'm most familiar with, so the 16th and 17th centuries, although there is an institutional privy council, it's a group whose membership can fluctuate quite significantly. It can be as large as 50 or 60. It can be as small as 12. Um, It's quite fluid. Its records look really formal, but actually, as they were generated or created, that process was not as orderly and formal as it looks. And I think there's some really interesting examples around the institutionalization of advice or the Privy Council, where someone who's a member of that body gives advice, but not at a Privy Council meeting. And then there's a question about what type of advice is being given. Is it being given according to certain often implicit rules? Is it being given outside that framework? Does it have the same weight? And so on. What other forms of institutionalisation have been used? Since 2010 in the UK, there has been a special advisor's code of conduct, which I think is issued by the Cabinet Office. And that states, and I I think this really sums up some of the discussion that we were talking about before in terms of problems as well, that employing special advisors adds a political dimension to the advice and assistance available to ministers while reinforcing the political impartiality of the permanent civil service by distinguishing the source of political advice and support. So I think one of these methods is to say there's the civil service on the one hand, which does not provide political advice, does not add a political dimension. And then we have special advisors who do precisely you know, exist in order to add this political dimension. So trying to maintain a boundary between the permanent civil service and the special advisors is one way in which methods are used to limit what the special advisors can do. I think the question then comes, two questions, and maybe we'll come back to this, is who holds this code of conduct up? Because as far as I'm aware, it's not statutory. And then secondly, what protection exists for the special advisors under this kind of system of limitation? Now, that their position seems to be quite precarious in terms of hiring and firing. They're not permanent civil servants. They don't have the protection that the permanent civil service does have. But I do think it's very interesting that in the code of conduct, this distinction between the civil service on the one hand being apolitical and the special advisors being political on the other and that the role of the special advisor is somehow to maintain the integrity and the apoliticalness of the civil service is explicitly spelt out. Ali do you want to take that on? Following on from what Caroline was saying I mean I think the attractiveness of the special advisors, the very informality of it, in a sense, you know, that they, that the, whoever picks them up can sort of, you know, they're outside a sort of a regularized system. But it is quite interesting how I suppose over time they do then become more and more regularized and formalized. So I mean, if I was to take the example, another example from Iran, which I I find, you know, is quite interesting, is you have the sort of regular government, and then you have on top of that the, you know, the religious leadership, and the religious leadership then has within it a sort of a set of sort of 
advisors i would even go so far as call them almost like you know religious commissars of one sort or another but they're all appointed on a very sort of ad hoc and personal level and they all basically you know do their master's bidding and they offer a certain amount of advice and engagement between you know the the masses and 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 the leadership but then over time it's been quite interesting to see over the 40 years in which this has existed it's really taken on the form of a sort of bureaucracy of its own so whereas you know in the 1980s it was you know, ostensibly a handful of people. I mean, obviously, I'm uh, diminishing it there because we, we might say 30 or 40 people. But now people are saying it numbers in the thousands. I mean, it's got a proper functioning bureaucracy around it. And it basically mirrors the regular bureaucracy. Um, and it, 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 it's a sort of a, a second government, a second tier government. So it's quite interesting how over time, you know, the more money they get, the more sort of regularised it becomes, whatever, it, all, it actually becomes become a sort of a means of patronage. What advice people can give is neither here nor there, actually, in some ways. I mean, it's more to do with actually being part of that inner network over and above what uh, the government itself is doing. And I think this is, you know, the greatest criticism of the special advisor is or the political advisor in that sense is if they're not experts in their field what are they there for obviously in the Iranian case with these sort of religious advisors you know it's quite fluid in some ways I mean they just need to have a you know a clerical training but it is as I said I think the 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 interesting thing is how it's become more and more of a sort of almost like a regular government department I mean it, it and it has you know, the various sort of strictures and structures and so on and so forth that a bureaucracy might have. So it's just replicating it. And probably with all with all the um, the problems, you can see in due course that there will be further special advisors appointed outside that network and they will be coming in as, you know, that will be the inner court, of course. I mean, all these very personal setups, there'll be family members will be doing the advising and this sort of thing. We've been looking at various sort of recurring patterns, one of which is network government, which has a present manifestation. On the other hand, it may well have had a a within parliament manifestation, classically portrayed by Trollope, for example, in his novels, where patronage, advice, all these elements go on within a small network, all of whom eat together, drink together, and at times run the country together. I'm wondering, apart from institutionalisation, whether the other methods by which the use of special advisors might be limited or, on the other hand, improved. So in a sense, it's a question of avoiding the misuse of special advisors, whether, for example, there are things to be learned from outside government. Caroline, would you like to start on that? So I would just start, I think, by questioning the extent to which, at least today in the UK, possibly in the USA as well, we can draw clear dividing lines between what's outside government and what is government. I mean, that's the whole point of network governance, that, you know, the, the sort of constitutional, formal, legalist way of thinking about government no longer really fits into this sort of brave new neoliberal world. So I think as well, it's also important to recognise, to link back to the discussion we were just having, that the many, many different kinds of advice and special advisors which have existed, not just throughout history, but even today. So, you know, I've, I've listened to discussions where special advisors have, you know, self-described themselves as being either generalist or specialist. 
So you can have generalist special advisors whose role is to try and link between different departments within government, to try and liaise with different branches of the civil service, you know, to try and get things done. You can have specialist special advisors. So, for example, the chief scientific advisory network that we have today obviously has to come with a certain amount of expertise. So I think the question of, you know, to what extent can we limit the use of special advisors is going to be very context dependent and specific in terms of what these individuals are actually doing. And that goes back to the point that I think both Ali and Jacqueline was making about the sort of informality of this position being both its strength and its fundamental weakness, at least from an outsider perspective looking in. Jacqueline, would you like to go on on that line? Modern attempts at this always seem to involve capping numbers and never seem very effective or it seems to be an unwinnable battle. In terms of past attempts, to give an example uh, from the eve of the civil wars in the years around 1640, when there's a huge amount of criticism of Charles I for not hearing advice or hearing the wrong advice, there were strenuous efforts made by Parliament to control appointments to the Privy Council, to ban Charles from taking advice from outside that set controlled list of advisers and a series of checks that a majority of those advisers had approved or endorsed decisions he made. Like most of the attempts to control the functioning of advice around a leader, this fell apart, or at least it didn't work in terms of resolving a political impasse. I think the issues there arise from the fact that these attempted limitations are often being set up to deal with a crisis. So there's a huge reservoir of political disloyalty, which makes it very hard to impose what's going to be an unpopular or unwelcome advisor on a political leader. And also because it works very much against the natural flow of a mixture of quite formal advice and more informal, spontaneous advice responsive to events. So in terms of improvement, I think it's quite hard to give overarching guidance. I think it's true to say, relative to your point, John, about what about advice outside of politics, that if we looked at business or management, there would be a huge literature nowadays on leadership but there would be relatively little about the other side of that equation, about advice to leaders, whereas in the past or in other circumstances, advisors have had much more structured attention. Ali? No, I was, I was going to say, John, actually, from, I mean, at least in the, the pre-modern period and even obviously the period that you're looking at, I mean, the one way to get limit special advisors was to just physically get rid of them. I thought the you know the corporate example that we have today is quite interesting because of course we have all these and I'm not expert on this at all but is it not you know all these sort of non-executive directorships that people have where they appoint all these specialists from various other sort of um, professions to come and be able to advise companies as to what they're doing and some of these of course are political you know people who have been politicians ex-politicians who can come and advise on the way in which uh, you know to engage with government government relations and this sort of thing 
the military is often quite good in terms of being able to sort of juxtapose the leadership element with the bureaucratic sort of element of any organization is also what they you know increasingly call you know red teaming which is basically this ability to to really challenge set ways of thinking from the outside in and if you're a fresh face in that sense you know it does give you a certain amount of ability to sort of look at something afresh from the outside in and, and to be able to challenge it okay one one final quick question partly going back to something that ali said earlier about family advice and one of the things that we are seeing at the moment in various regimes are children son-in-laws providing certain forms of political advice is the danger that restricting political advisors in some sort of semi-formal position that we now have are the disadvantages to doing that as well as advantages to doing that so just quick final answers on the possible advantages of retaining special advisors starting with caroline Again, looking at the current day sort of UK context, I think special advisors are absolutely crucial to a minister's ability to implement and carry through policy. And it's also when we can talk about the input in terms of advising the minister, but there's also that output, which is in terms of translating what the particular ministry wants to get done and making sure that it actually happens. So I think that this persuasion element is also really fundamental. I think, though, again, in the kind of current UK context, there needs to be a clear dividing line between special advisers being able to instruct civil servants on behalf of the minister or special advisers actually directly managing civil servants or telling them what to do. So I think that's where the constitutional um, kind of tension at the moment is. So. Honestly, I think special advisors do an absolutely crucial job. I don't envy them. I think it can be a very, you know, a very difficult, challenging um, position to have, but that it does need a whole kind of constitutional tightening up in terms of where we're at in the United Kingdom at the moment. Amy, a quick closing thought? I think, I mean, I think in the countries that, or the country I look at, particularly in Iran, because government is so personal in many ways that, you know, family then becomes a feature. You can't avoid it. I mean, in that sense, um, it also becomes highly problematic, obviously, because, uh, you know, these, they, the, the family, in a sense, become the gatekeepers, uh, at, you know, the court, effectively. I suppose having a sort of a family member there it has all the advantages and disadvantages in a much more heightened way than we've been talking before, in the sense that, arguably a family member will know you better and know what makes you tick and therefore that's going to you know that puts them at a certain advantage um in terms of the advice they can give or the or, or the way in which they can mediate advice mediate advice to you you know knowing who to bring in on the other hand of course it's you know the charge of nepotism is obviously going to be very real and a final word from Jacqueline yeah, well, I don't think anyone's now claiming that there should be no special advisors or that use of them should be completely uncontrolled. And I think some of the testimony from former civil servants have, has been that there can be very productive relationships for them as well with having special advisors also engaged in the political process. I think it's more about working out what the natural limits of the effectiveness of special advisors are and how many can actually function effectively as a sort of crucial supporting team around a minister. What relationships does that probably quite small team have with other advisors or role holders? Because there aren't sort of grand answers on those points, 
that generates a further series of questions about the circumstances in which patterns of advice or special advice need to change, whether that happens naturally, whether it requires active intervention. So I think implicitly these debates are about if there are limits, who sets them, who enforces them, who decides when they ought to change. And as we've been saying uh, at various points, in some ways what we need is more critical reflection on the ways in which the political process or participants in it are making demands on special advisers, which can't be reconciled, which aren't always compatible, which generates a series of problems, but which also reflect the way in which special advisers are quite flexible, quite constitutionally malleable, serve all sorts of paradoxical or ambivalent purposes, but actually reflect something that they are usefully giving to the political process. It leaves me to thank Ali Ansari, Caroline Humphreys, Jacqueline Rose, and thank you to all of you for listening.